This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we tell stories of inclusive people, companies, and innovation. I am your co-host, Rob Hadley, and with me, as always, is my co-host and what I call the star of the show, Nadia Butt. Nadia, how are you? <laughs> Co-star. I'm good, Rob. How are you? Lovely. It's a glorious day where I am. Oh, really? Is it sunny? Always sunny. Come on. Is it? Always sunny in Utah? Always sunny in Utah. So... Can I ask you a question? Because I'm I'm curious if you. Um, I'm waiting. I'm ready. All right. If you could learn another language, uh -huh. which one would it be, and how would you go about learning it? You <laughs> mean other than all the languages I already know? Yeah. Well, that's actually I don't know how many how many other languages do you? Know? I would like to learn English a little bit better, oh. to be honest with you. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Like I have like literally like the with English. Yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. No, I mean I just learn how to speak better. I, so obviously I speak a little bit of Portuguese, so I'll take that one out, but so I, I'd like to learn, I don't know, something that's like completely way out of my wheelhouse. Let's say Japanese. I'd like to learn Japanese and I would that only would learn fun. it by mm -hmm. going to Japan for a year and yeah. just only speaking, but it really wouldn't take that. I think it would only take like six, yeah, probably like six months. Uh, I spent about three months in Brazil okay. uh, at learning Portuguese and I was pretty close to fluent when I when I left. So, um, that's so how about you? What, what would what would be yours? Yeah, no, that's the only way to learn language. Yeah. It what is. Would you, what would you immersing learn? yourself in the yeah in a place where you can learn? Um, so you know, I I don't I'm not proficient in Urdu, but I absolutely can understand all of it. Speaking it is a little bit tricky for me. Um, I would love to learn really conversational Arabic, and you know, I could go to somewhere in the Middle East, whether that's Lebanon or Dubai or Saudi Arabia. When we were younger, yeah, we learned how to nothing. read it, but like not how to 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 speak it. So that's just you know, it'd be more. Do you think you will learn conversational Arabic? Because I feel like there's nothing stopping you, right? Like, oh just, no, I don't have a million things in my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean maybe I don't. I, I like I'd love to learn a, a new language, but it's not a priority right now. What okay. about you? Is okay, that like well, a... I'll put you. I'll put you down for. No, I'm not going to learn Japanese. Okay. Yeah, I got too many things going on. <laughs> I got too many other priorities. Yeah. But this is a theoretical conversation, of course. So Nadia, let's yes. let's get to the stories we're watching this week. The yes. deets, as we say, I like how we call it the deets, and there's very little detail that we actually give in any of some of these stories. Just the highlights. Uh, we'll start with. <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> the highlights where we call it the deets. Uh, a new survey from World at Work reveals that salary increase budgets reached their highest level in 20 years. In the U.S., they rose an edge of 4.1% in 2022 uh, and are projected to be again at around 4.1% in 2023. So my first thought here is, uh, is that inflation is running about 8 to 10% per year. Uh-huh. Year over year, so thanks for that four percent raise, right? <laughs> so what do you, you know, everyone's getting, uh, you know, every, everything's going up in terms of their prices, eight to ten percent. Companies are giving around four four percent of a raise. Um, so what are you going to do uh, with your giant four percent raise this year, Nadia? You, <laughs> what I'm going to get a Lamborghini. Are you with the four yeah. percent? Oh wow! I yeah. didn't know that's, yeah. that's actually. I'm going to buy. I'm going to buy butter. Is what I'm going to do. I'm <laughs> yeah, going to afford butter. I was just going to say you know? maybe additional toilet paper. Like I don't know. Um, <laughs> Well, that's a question, you know, so does that mean that these rises and bonuses, that those are on the rise, regardless of this, like, quote unquote, inflation period that we're all in or that we're seeing? Because I I feel like I'm seeing this trend with organizations where they're laying off people maybe to preemptively consider, quote unquote, inflation. Yeah, it's a tough, uh, high. It's not a quote unquote inflation period. Mm -hmm. I went to uh, to buy the. And I'm not joking about the butter, right? Like I went to buy Juliana likes the uh, like the Fabio butter. What's the the I can't believe I can't it's not believe butter. it's not butter, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Seventy five dollars for butter. What? No, just Get kidding. Out of here. It was like, but it was like seven. It was like seven fifty, right? Yeah, so yeah. It's um. It's, and it's the sizes are decreasing. That's what I've been hearing too. I know. Is that like, I know. Right. But companies are struggling with it, and so you're like, yeah, you're right on. They're they're preemptively. You're starting to see the layoffs. There'll be more. The the thought that I had on that was that. It's really important as you roll out these raises, right, to examine how performance is is included or how that is factored into how companies raise salaries. Sure. And so I always think about that often performance management and okay. the performance rating systems the companies use. There's so much bias in them. And so it's really important if you haven't already, if you're thinking about, hey, we're, we're going to you know, raise salaries and, and this is how we do it and it factors performance in. If you haven't looked at how that performance, how that performance management system works and what the potential biases in our, those annual rating systems are, mm-hmm. then uh, that's an important first step before raising salaries. Absolutely. Looking at those behaviors and competencies, for sure. Um, should we go to the second story? Virgin Atlantic last week announced that it was changing its uniform and name badge policies for employees. Um, so there was an article that was written where the airline's new policy will permit employees to choose the uniform that they feel best represents their gender. And um, the company will also offer non-obligatory um, pronoun badges to airline staff and passengers. They'll let employees show their tattoos if they have them and makeup optional for all their um, for all genders. I just feel like this is a massive upgrade to kind of like the archaic uniform policies that many airlines still have in place. And so I'm just happy to see them do this um, and hope other airlines follow suit. Do you have any reactions? Yeah, my reaction is Virgin Atlantic such a great brand. Not only did they make a policy change, have you seen the photos? Have you seen the photo shoots? they've, They've actually built a campaign around it and made it part of their employee value proposition. And the photos look Amazing, right? right? They're incredibly well done. So the, fun. The ways that they highlighted the uniforms are super fun, super cool. Yeah. So again, this is a brand that leans into inclusion. I saw founder Richard Branson speak a couple of years ago, and he was talking about how for years, when, as they were a growing company, they would hire felons. He said that, you know, to the point that they had an accountant who did all his books mm-hmm. that would work for him Monday through Friday and then would 
would go back into prison on the weekends. Oh, interesting. Right? And so his, his art, yeah, it was just super about giving people second chances and, and people that. who were marginalized or, or looked down on by society. And so really cool. Like the whole brand is, is awesome and inclusive. And I, I love the, the uniforms love I came that. up with. Speaking of uh, formerly uh, imprisoned people, it's a great segue to a quick just story yeah. number three. Um, yesterday, the New York Times reported that President Biden is pardoning all prior federal offenses of simple marijuana possession. Big win for the criminal justice advocates. So just wanted to touch base on that. I know we talked in episode one of season uh, of this the season about marijuana and possession of marijuana and just what that has done to the criminal justice system. And um, now I'm also excited that we can get many of these people to register to vote. <laughs> <laughs> i know that's on your mind i, I so this was kind of late breaking uh as we were you know as we we're uh starting to record the episode and so i haven't looked at it too deeply i think it's obviously awesome you know consider you know again that first episode that we had it's really hard to deny people the opportunities to work and to be part of society for things that are now very legal and very prominent in many states. you know especially in more affluent communities mm -hmm. right and in a lot of the states that we have so this is awesome and Huge obviously I, you know fully support that absolutely so thanks for that nadia i think we're i think we're all set with the deets this week we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with aparna ray this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're back with our guest today. Aparna Ray is a multi-startup founder working at the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusivity. As an award-winning entrepreneur, Aparna understands the complexities for small and medium businesses working to have a positive impact on the world. She's the founder of Moving Beyond, a startup building solutions to solve complex DE&I and people challenges using real-time employee voice and impact data, experiential e-learning, and an innovative lab approach grounded in human-centered design. Prior to Moving Beyond, she grew Firky, India's first online teacher education platform supporting teachers in 10 states. And in 2019, she launched Future For Us, a platform to advance women of color at work 
and grew a professional community of 11,000 and counting, I'm sure, Aparna. Uh, so Aparna Ray, so great to see you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. So happy to be here. So happy to finally meet you. I've been following you on LinkedIn and it's just such a pleasure to get to talk to you about your experience. Um, Clearly, you have a lot going on, right? Just from your inter- um, Rob's introduction of you. But can you tell us something about you personally that brought you to this point? So how did your experiences, your identity really influence um, what you're building and what you're hoping to continue building? That's it. That's your starter question. Just like a little lo- low ball warm up. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, just a little <laughs> recap of your life, your lived experiences here. <laughs> what, what got me to this point? You know, so I think and, and I was thinking about it this morning as I was getting ready in my group, reading over your, your guys' emails is, you know, when I think about like, why, why did I come into diversity, equity, inclusion work? I definitely slid sideways into this. It wasn't like my biggest aspiration. And I could say that it's because I'm a woman of color, but I think Nadia, you and I know that we're really like maybe people of color here. Uh, we're not people of color. Like I'm not a person of color when I go home to India. Nobody says, oh, look at that person of color. I could also say that maybe it's because I'm an immigrant, but I, I think that the truth is that a lot of my points of view were shaped in my early years of living in the United States where I don't look super desi. I don't look very South Asian uh, or how I think people in the U.S. anyways imagine South Asians. When I was in my late teens, we moved here when I was 15, people would think I was either mixed race, uh, Black bi- biracial, or they would think I was a Latina. And I wasn't, but I also, because I grew up in a working class, low-income family, I also wasn't getting a whole lot of love from the South Asian community. And so I did. I like defaulted to um, having a friend group and a professional group as well, having studied education. My friends were primarily Latinos and African-American. And Mm -hmm. I just definitely, not only did I like try it on for size, but I got to experience I think a lot of the really over discrimination I mean I think it's true for me today and it was true for me 15 years ago um I don't want to trade places with a black person in America I would never do that um because I know that their life is so much harder you know whatever I face um it's exponentially more difficult and so how I tried to sort through that in the first like decade of my career was as an educator, I taught the University of British Columbia's teacher education program as well, um, worked in youth development, uh, went to India, and I get to solve for it now as, I wouldn't even say a DEI practitioner. I would really say that my jam is like making workplaces more equitable, period. Um, mm-hmm. Is DEI how we get there? Personally, I would love to slash and burn that whole concept. Mm-hmm. But if if that's how I have to talk about it, then yeah, that's how I get to do it now. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Actually, before you go in, Rob, to your first question, could you help our listeners understand what a desi is? Because we haven't used that term on the podcast and it would be great to be able to define that. Yeah, Desi is comes from the word Daesh, which it's like people from the Indian subcontinent. I would say Pakistanis also call themselves Desis. After we be from mm-hmm. India, we, we refer to ourselves as Desis, Bangladeshis, even Sri Lankan. I've heard people, right? Like, you know, for me, it's like 
I don't, I hate saying I'm, I'm from Southeast Asia or I'm from South Asia. Or, like <laughs> nobody like who yeah. from the subcontinent. I've grown up saying Desi, right? Like, we grew up saying Desi. <laughs> right. Or I think, I mean, I think I've definitely heard a lot of people over the years say like I'm from the subcontinent, um, referring to the Indian subcontinent. But definitely we're like, I hate, I hate marking myself as like Asian. I'm like, can you give me Same. a more culturally appropriate category, please? Right, right. <laughs> Thank you for that explanation. Aparna, you, I think of you as a person, I, I know you have a ton of experience in the nonprofit public interest sectors, and a lot of your work is based on using data, right, to help companies, organizations create DENI or better workplaces, you know, oftentimes specifically yeah. anti-racist cultures. I'm just curious if those two things are related in any way, your formation of using data coming from spending so much time in nonprofit and public interest uh, organizations. Yeah. DEI and anti-racism. Well, I, I will say that um, for any of your listeners that don't already know this, DEI and anti-racism um, are not the same thing, right? And what they do have in common is that they're both aspirational. I mean, it's like, I feel like all of DEI is aspirational. We are aspiring to represent the diversity of our communities, of our customer base, of our beneficiaries. We are aspiring to have workplaces that are inclusive where people that are not white, cis, het, male, feel valued, feel celebrated, feel explicitly supported. And we are aspiring to have policies and practices that create equity what nobody is there yet. I, I don't think I can think of a single company, big or small, across any industry. But I, I would even say that I for sure have a grouse against the you're calling it public interest sector. The the social sector mm -hmm. I think is like a case study in you know just perpetuating harm and perpetuating inequity. And I mean, what like what have we solved for? I've, I've spent you know a decade in education and. And for all of the philanthropic dollars and all of the investment that's gone into education, like, look, they're like states that are banning books, basic books. They are not banning anything controversial. Mm -hmm. They're literally banning kids books where a kid might have two moms. Like, this is not controversial. We're not living in the Middle Ages, right? So all of it's aspirational. Being anti-racist also is aspirational because at the heart of anti-racism is um, looking at what structures, systemic structures, cause inequity and right. undoing them, right? Or breaking them apart and rebuilding them. And I don't think it's lost on anybody. It's not a surprise that in the United States, but I think really everywhere in the world, we've legislated discrimination. We have legislated inequities. We legislate it on the basis of tax policy, availability of healthcare. I mean, it's 2022, like, and for fuck's mm. sake, like women can't get an abortion in half of the states in the United States. Like, are, are you, are you kidding me? Um, right. Like, what are we going to do? Like go south of the border for them? It's just, I mean, it's just really bizarre. And so where I think data comes into play is like, I don't know that data in of itself and just the lack of data literacy in, in the world mm. is going to help us solve for necessarily DEI or help us solve for anti-racism. But I think what it does do when there is a willing party like wanting to engage with it is 
helps you see where some of the sticky points are. Mm -hmm. Um, And it helps you see what's solvable. I think in large part, like what's solvable right here, right now. If you have infrastructure, and I think Rob, like you've probably done a lot of this work in like bigger companies, right? Like Mm -hmm. when you have sort of longitudinal data, then you can say, yeah, I see, I see the systemic inequity here. Like look at where it's showing up. It's showing up here. You're not going to get that from like a one-off employee survey. Um, But what you will get from a one-off employee survey is like a state of the state, right? Like Mm -hmm. who is this company working for? Who is it not working for? And in what areas? You know, that's so interesting because the data, like you said, won't solely close the gap. It helps kind of highlight the gap and highlight the sentiment maybe in an organization to really understand where the, the, the pain points are. So what is going to help cl- like close the right? This is like the million, like this is like the bajillion dollar question is that what, because for now, almost, you know. Another softball for Eight you. years that I've been seeing this work. Yeah, here's another <laughs> loaded question. <laughs> Tell us the answer. Well, you started with asking me what is going to move the needle, right? What is going to move the needle? We can have change that's incremental. I think that we've been working on it, right? Like we've been testing the incremental pieces. And look, I read the Women in the Workplace report by McKinsey every year. And there is the one graph that they have on the first page of the report, in the first section of the report, which is like, what is the progress to the boardroom, right? And they break out um, the percent of women of color, men of color, white women, white men. So, I mean, obviously it's not as intersectional and representative of what our workplaces look like, but they do that. And then they say like, well, what's the representation by entry level roles and managers and directors, right? It comes out every year and every year there's some sort of like a super kind of apologetic, we've made some progress, but not enough, right? And the the needle has moved 0.5%. And I'm like, well, we're not going to make it to the boardroom if the needle's only moving 0.5% every year. Like, what the heck? My point of view, and this is um, not always a popular point of view, but equity isn't like everything that you need in the world is already there in the world. And, you know, we don't have no, we have no real lack of resources. I think you hear a lot of DEI practitioners say equity is not a pie. No, no, no. But like budgets are finite. It is literally finite. You know, how many people that you're, you're going to hire? Like, what is your open headcount for 2023? That is a finite number. Mm -hmm. If we're going to move the needle on equity, then, yeah, I mean, I love this, like, idea of, like, I'll break my chair to the table. Okay, you do that. But, like, is that how companies work? Like, we can just go, We got, I can just go to Microsoft and be like, hi, I'd love to be your, like, a assistant, a director of, like, inclusion. No. They're going to be like, GTFO, buddy, like, you don't work here. We don't have this job open for you to apply to. So, if we're going to move the needle, like if we actually want to move the needle, then we have to to think about who gets to give up their seat and, uh, right, do an Alexis, right? He like literally, uh, you know who I'm talking about, right? Um, maybe some of your listeners are Reddit yeah. fans. Um, giving up a board seat so that a person of color explicitly can get it, not because they're a person of color, 
but because they're qualified. And by the way, we need their perspective. I think like reparations, we, we need that to happen. If we're going to level the playing field, people don't like talking about it. And I think that people that are in positions of power, look, I think they're actually very smart. They've made DEI an interpersonal issue when it's a systems issue. And so just like any one of us can't really be doing reparations for our Black friends and colleagues or our Native friends and colleagues because it's, it needs to come from the top down. Um, similarly, I think equity and inclusion work in organizations is like top down. What are you willing to trade to move from aspirational to actual? Now we're having a good time. You said you said reparations, <laughs> and I want to talk. So I just want to follow up on that a little bit. So is, are you speaking at a federal level, or are you saying that companies and corporations have a role to play because there may be an unrealistic aspect of federal reparations? Not that I, I mean, I'm I'm definitely certainly for that. I don't know if that'll happen yeah. necessarily in my lifetime, and so there are all these things that that companies can do or, or, you know, through other uh, executive action, things like that. Yeah. Say more about what companies can do or what the role that they should be playing in, in uh, making that happen. Yeah. So what's the role of the company versus what's the role of the, the federal government, right? Like, I mean, we live in the United States and the government is not really working very well for the people. I think it's a given fact. Um, who it's working really well for is it, um, heads of corporations, like period. Whether it's the head of United Way or it's the head of Amazon, that's who that's who it's working for. Um, or name your favorite philanthropy, right? Uh, I'll give you like I'll give you an example to make make this point. If companies, if these decision makers, CEOs, leaders wanted to have universal health care, we could have it tomorrow. They could show up on Capitol Hill and say, enough with this state-by-state -state plan that I, by the way, I also have to implement, right? Like if I'm, if I'm running a company and there's 50 states and I have employees in 50 states, that's a significant administrative burden to mm -hmm. administer plans and sure. like all of the requirements, right? They could march down there and they could say, enough of this. We are going to pay our fair share relative to what we earn, and we're going to we're going to make healthcare universal in the United States. They could do that, but what they know is that when they control benefits and they use benefits as a carrot, then they lock us in to having to go work for them. When healthcare is tied to your employer, then you have to be employed. Then your employer gets to call the shots and it gives more power back to heads of companies. And so that is the tension between like the government and companies. Now in the state of Washington, Microsoft for all of the ills in the world, uh, not to mention Teams and SharePoint, which is like the death of me. Um, Microsoft went down to Olympia to our like, you know, state Capitol Hill. And they said, you know what, like, we want it. We want it for our state. And it was employers in the state of Washington that made it possible to pass a somewhat comprehensive paid family and medical leave legislation. And so companies have power. They can pressure the government to do anything they want. They could be doing it for equity, whether it's by way of reparations or something else. They're choosing not to do it. Right, so right. who's responsible? I mean, it's like a chicken and egg. 
I want to transition into trends that you're seeing because what you're discussing about in terms of universal health care and how corporations have this type of power, there have been a number of workplace trends that are happening, especially over the summer. Um, one of them, for example, uh, Rob and I were, ta- were talking about this last week is Walmart has expanded kind of their um, health care benefits or coverage for their employees. That's one of them. But I was hoping to get your thoughts on some additional trends that we're seeing um, in relation to DEI in the workplace, uh, especially from, you know, maybe as an output from what occurred due to the pandemic. The first one being mm-hmm. quiet quitting. <laughs> so what are just your general thoughts on this this trend? This Is, is it a phenomenon? Is it something um, we've seen before? What are kind of just your takeaways in terms of quiet quitting? Y'all are doing me really dirty with these questions. <laughs> um, what do you mean? Okay. We're having fun. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Quiet quitting. WTF. Um, yeah. What is quiet qu- quitting? I mean, I think that if, you know, you're like four year older um, and you, you know that there is like a stereotype or there used to be a stereotype of government employees government employees you want to get anything done you got to show up you have to wait you know i definitely when i worked in education you literally had to move your piece of paper that you needed signed from desk to desk to desk Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. that's quiet quitting it's been around for a very long time Mm -hmm. i mean it's just another way of seeing like people are having some boundaries but that they're talking about the boundaries that they want to have or hold now, I think the issue that quiet quitting, in my opinion, doesn't take into consideration is wage stagnation. The majority of the country lives in poverty, which is a really unpopular thing to say out loud. Mm-hmm. But more than 50% of people in America couldn't come up with $1,000 in liquid assets, like in cash, if they were to have an emergency. $1,000. Right. right. $1,000. You need $2 million it's to retire. Unreal. Right? Yeah. It's unreal. And a significant percentage of the country can't even come up with $500 in case of an emergency. And that's not just like the cash that they have. It's like also being able to like go to like your friends and be like, hey, Rob, hey, Nadia, I need like I need a little bit of money for my you know car broke down. And you all are like, mm, also, I don't have it. Right. So, right. And in certain communities, it's like awkward to ask your friends or family for money. Right. It's it's like a thing people just don't do. So totally. Yeah. And money, money is awkward, period, for most people in most places. And so when I think of quiet quitting, like what's resonating for me, and this was happening a lot in uh, with our clients and customers right now, it's being framed as people have a a sense of entitlement or this new generation of workers have the sense of entitlement. They just just don't want to work hard. And I, I think about the fact that literally people are making decisions about whether they can make rent or Mm. they can support a family member or they can put money in retirement or they can feed themselves well. There Mm. isn't enough money to do all of the things. And for those of us that I think perhaps live in a bubble of like six-figure incomes and single-family homes, it's out of our line of sight because we're not living in those places and we're also not working in those environments where we are face-to-face with people that are really, really freaking struggling. And so sure. people should quite quit all they want um, until we 
get to a place where like we have living wages and we're not having to make decisions that, by the way, like we also weren't making, I think 15 or 20 years ago, like when I first came into my job, it, there was no laptop, there was no TikTok, people couldn't message you on LinkedIn. It, mm -hmm. um, you did your work at your desktop in your office and then right. you went home. <laughs> Yep, right. Totally. I mean, remember those days with like our Nokia brick phones? I mean, oh, yeah. all of us a little bit. Barely right? had no, any I don't, service. I don't remember had those like... days, but no. no. <laughs> we a had like a thousand my... minutes a month. Yeah, a little before my time, but go on. <laughs> a little little before your time, right? So I, I think about now, like also, not only are we not earning enough to like make our basic needs, but by the way, like 18 different people can message you on 30 different platforms and you need to be responsive. It's like that, like, you know, there's this like rom-com where Drew Barrymore is talking about how, and I think this is like, this movie is also really old because she's like, like, she's like, she's doing like voicemail, text message. And I think maybe Facebook, right? Like there are three different right. ways of like playing tag. But now my I'm like, space. gosh, my, my space, <laughs> rest in peace, my space. Um, but yeah, like we're also needing to be responsive in a way that I think is unprecedented. Right. The expectations that are put on to to be responsive. And now the whole remote workplace, it's like you're you should be available. What do you mean? You have access to all of these gadgets, which goes into the next topic. Rob, do you want to ask that one? I feel like this mm -hmm. is a mm -hmm. uh, you are an entrepreneur, a multi startup founder. We spend a lot of time on this show talking to founders, uh, you know, they're starting companies and and um what do you think about in terms of advice for you give for the person who is launching or building a company around diversity, equity, and inclusion? Uh, <laughs> you're, you're smiling. So, so, so just as a person with a lot of experience in both worlds, uh, what, what kind of advice would you give these folks? Don't do it. Don't start a company. <laughs> Come on. Just don't do it. Come on. Why? Why? That's, oh gosh, I need you to know why. You don't believe that. Yeah. I, you know what, I've been an entrepreneur for a really, really long time. But when I think about like my journey and, and success, success in entrepreneurship has typically come after actually having like a jobby job. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about Future for Us, which we grew this um, incredible platform, we had probably close to 20,000 members mm. in that first year. And we closed it down due to the pandemic and new resource challenges. We were successful in part because of the job job that I had prior to that. And so I think under entrepreneurship, it was great. You have to know why you want to be an entrepreneur in any space, but I, I think it, specifically in DNI, this isn't this isn't super well funded. Like companies will talk a really big game and then Rob, like you said, they'll send out an RFP with ten thousand dollars in two months of like pretty intense work and you're like, how do you want me to make six dollars an hour to like deliver mm -hmm. on this contract? That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. And I like if you're in it for like gold stars and like glory don't do that just don't do it um but also look the startup ecosystem is is incredible and mm -hmm. if i was going to do it again i'll be honest with you like i would have gone and worked for somebody else hmm. for sure that's a little bit farther along yeah, yeah. awesome Aparna Ray, very cool thank you so much for joining us and spending time with us today on inclusive collective we really enjoyed it 
It was wonderful, Aparna. I'm so glad to, that you joined us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. We are at the Con Reflection section of our podcast. Um, so great to meet Aparna. I feel like uh, I've been wanting to meet with her and chat with her. I really appreciated um, the conversation that we were having on reparations and universal health care. And the, and the reason why I love that is because she was answering a question that was like, how do we move forward? How do companies like move forward as part of DE&I work? Like once they, how do they make like actual meaningful change and impact employees and make the workforce equitable? So I really appreciated that conversation. What what were your takeaways, Rob? Yeah, really same same takeaways. We finally got to reparations, right? I've been waiting all all season to get to all that. Season. No, just kidding. Yeah. But she said my favorite, yeah, she said for fuck's sake. That was like that was that could be the new tagline. Of, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So uh thanks very much to Aparna Ray for joining us. It's time for raves and rants. Yeah, did right, you, Nadia? Did you already do the coin toss? I, I did, I did, and I am. I will be raving today. Oh, okay. Do you want to go first? Yeah. So my rave this week is Carolyn R. Batazzi won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry this nice. week. Did you see this? I believe I finished fourth in the voting. I didn't, did you? Oh, I didn't no. see this. Yeah, yeah, great just, news. yeah. So she's, um, so she is just the eighth woman to win the prize. Congratulations to her. That's awesome. I'm sure yeah. you feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. very big accomplishment. But I was wondering about this Swedish award. Uh, the Nobel Prize and wondering about the diversity overall. And did you know hey. that as of 2020, so this is, and I could have looked at 2021, but I was lazy, that I was 119 years, only 3% of the science awardees have been women, zero science laureates have been black. In 2019, the suggestion was made to the nominators to perhaps consider diversity in their nominations, right? So very polite suggestion. This isn't science um, though, right? Not This is just in, so this is just the science yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, and you know, of course, the problem is systemic is 14% of master's students in science and all PhD students come from underrepresented backgrounds. And only mm. 1.6 of chemistry professors are black, uh, a number that hasn't moved in 15 years. So rave so for yeah. uh, Dr. Bertazzi, but uh, rant for the uh, field of science. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I, I didn't know that information, but I'm not surprised. I did go to Oslo, Norway, where the... They actually hand to the center where they hand out the Nobel Peace Prizes, um, right. which was really, really cool. But they seem to have missed that data, uh, that piece of information on the tour. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, room for improvement, I think. Yeah, room for improvement. Yeah. Uh, rant. Mm. He's not even really worth talking about, but I'm just really annoyed with Kanye West this week. He uh, um, Kanye. His so-called fashion... Um, you know, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about him because, you know, that's what he kind of wants. But yees, you are irrelevant. You're damaging. Let's move on. That's my rant for tip this week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's it for today, Nadia. That's it. Thanks so much. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have feedback, uh, for us directly, send us an email at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. Find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. 
TikTok. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check out Nadia at NazConsultants.com and Rob at TacanoConsulting.com. Thanks again to our guest, Aparna Ray. Thank you all so much. We'll be back next week. Be well.